As Tom just said, that we're, um, we're beginning a series of sermons under this title, Jesus, Our Only Hope. And the focus will be Jesus. <laughs> um, so what better way to begin the year and this season in our life as a church than making our saviour and our master the focal point of our devotion and teaching. I'd like you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4, please. Luke chapter 4, I'm going to start reading at verse 14. Luke 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found a place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Thank God for his word. In recent weeks, We've seen and heard politicians in this country uh, setting out their stalls in preparation for the general election in May. They produce their manifesto, which is defined as a written statement of the beliefs and aims and policies of an organisation. Cynics and sceptics amongst us will take some of what they say with a huge pinch of salt, wondering how much of what they promise will actually become reality if and when they come to power. Here in Luke chapter 4, you could say that Jesus was setting out his manifesto at the start or near the start of his public ministry but with some fundamental and crucial differences from British politicians. One of those differences is that he had already started to do what he was now promising to do. Luke doesn't give us any information about this, but if you look at the other Gospels, you'll see that from the time of his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus launched out on this tour, if you like, around Galilee, 
going from one place to another, calling people to follow him and become his disciples, seeing literally hundreds of people healed and their lives changed. That had all happened before he arrived in Nazareth and came to the synagogue on this particular occasion. So when he stood up to say, today this scripture is fulfilled, he was not just talking about something that was going to happen, he was talking about something that was already happening. Carried a great weight of authority in that sentence. Today, this is happening. And we know also that he continued and continues to do what he set out on that day in Nazareth synagogue. We see it still happening. We still see people's lives transformed. We've heard testimony already this morning that he's still doing it. Well, let's look at some, um, in some detail at what he says here. And we're also going to look to see the implications of what he said for our lives, individually and as a church. He reads from the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 61 in our Bibles. For a preacher, it's an extraordinarily short scripture reading and a short sermon too. And he breaks off, interestingly, right in the middle of a sentence in Isaiah's prophecy. And that's where, immediately, we see something of a mystery about what Jesus, or who Jesus is, and what he's come to do. Jesus is coming, seen from God's perspective, if you like, is a two-act drama. The first one is the year of the Lord's favor, he talks about in Isaiah 61. The second act is the day of vengeance of our God. If you look in Isaiah 61, you'll see that's how this, this particular passage finishes. And that's what Isaiah said when he uh, wrote down this prophecy some 700 years before Jesus was born. But the people who were listening to Jesus in the synagogue on that day believed that those two elements, the day, the year of the Lord's favour, the day of the Lord's favour, and the day of the vengeance of our God would, would happen together. Those two acts would happen together, simultaneously. But the interesting thing to note is that Jesus leaves out the day of vengeance bit. He stops at this is the day or the year of the Lord's favour. He stops there. It's a two-act drama, and there's an at least 2,000-year gap between the two acts. And we're still in Act 1, the day of the Lord's favour. 
The day of the vengeance of our God is yet to come. In John chapter 12, uh, verse 47, 48, Jesus says, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. So we see that Jesus ushered in the year or the era of the Lord's favour. To save people, not to judge them. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2, I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. And it's clearly not just talking about, you know, like Wednesday, that particular week was the day of salvation. What he's saying is, this is this day, this is the day, this is the time, this is the era of God's favour, this is the time when you may be saved, when you may come into a relationship with God where your sin is forgiven, your life is transformed, and you are set fair for the rest of eternity in the presence of God. Now is your opportunity. This is the day. This is the day of God's favour. This day, this era in which we are living, it's a day of grace and patience in God's heart. I want to say that to you this morning. I I become very impatient. Sometimes I look around the congregation, you know, and uh, I'm not going to name any names, but I look around and I think, come on! You know, how long are you going to wait? How, How much more do you need to hear? I mean, Norman was one of those, but... He's down. Mike Powell was another one. I used to, every Sunday morning, look at, come on! What are you waiting for? This is the day. This is the day of God's favour. And I just have to start setting my sights somewhere else. I won't mention anything as well. Keep, keep your eyes down, Justice. Okay. This is the day of grace and patience of our God. But eventually... And inevitably, the day of his vengeance will arrive. And Isaiah's prophecy will be completed, fulfilled. As we see in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That day will come. But this isn't that day. For the present, that day is postponed. Thank God. Thank God. So, so we see then, Jesus is on a mission here. And so are we. Jesus is on a mission, so are we. There are two reasons for us to be able to say that uh, this morning, that Jesus is on a mission and we are on a mission. The first reason is that Jesus sends us, those who love him, 
those who acknowledge him as Lord and Savior, Master in our lives, he sends us in the same way that he was sent. At the end of John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 21, he says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. So we can say, okay, God the Father sent Jesus on a mission, and in the same way, he's sending us on a mission. So we're part of that mission. Secondly, second reason for being able to say that is that the Bible clearly says that the church is the body of Christ. And that doesn't mean just simply it's another word for a collection of people, a body of people. What he's saying, the, the biblical picture that we have is that somehow we make up the representation of Jesus in our world today. People know what you're thinking and who you are by what you do with your body. They can see who you are by, by your body, by what you do with your body. People can see Christ when they see his body, his church in action. We are the representation of the invisible God here and now. So we are part of the mission. Our actions are to be his actions. So when we read of what he did and said in the Gospels, we need to consider two things. And over these coming months, as we look into the Gospels and we read the stories of Jesus, we need to consider two things. First of all, those things that he did for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. We need to consider those. There are some things you can't do for yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't get yourself into a right relationship with God by yourself, by your own efforts, by trying to be a good person, nice person, generous person, lovely person. You can't get yourself into a right relationship with God by yourself. You can't do it. It doesn't work. You need Jesus to do that for you. We needed Jesus to come into the world, to be our saviour, to take the punishment for our sins in his body when he died on the cross, and to deal with that forever. We needed Jesus. Nobody else, nobody can reconcile us to God in the way that Jesus can. There's no other way, just him. So we need to consider those things that he did for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. And then we need to also consider the example that he is setting for what we should do. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, To this you were called, so your ears should be pricking up, man. So, what? I'm Christian now? To this I was called. What was I called to? Well, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You should follow in his steps. So when you come to read the stories of Jesus, you need to be asking yourself or you need to be asking him, Lord, show me 
What can I learn from this about how I ought to live? What sort of an example are you setting me here that I need to follow? How can I be a representative part of the body of Christ in the world in which I'm living today? How can I follow in your steps? So let's look at that. Let's look at Jesus' footsteps for us to follow in as he outlines it here in Luke chapter 4. The first thing that we see about Jesus in those early days of his public ministry is that he refused Satan's power and relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. It's true to say that the Holy Spirit was all over him, all over everything about him. If you want to know, who is the Holy Spirit? What's that? What does he do? Look at Jesus, because you'll see. (coughs) We see that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We've heard that so many times over the past month as we celebrated the birth of Jesus. At that precise second, when that little egg in Mary's womb was... um, fertilized that was the spirit of God that was a miracle conception of Jesus it was by the spirit the Holy Spirit came and created this baby secondly we see on the day that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan that the Holy Spirit it says came in bodily form as a dove and he Settled, He was there above Jesus. And as the word from God came, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So the Holy Spirit was there as Jesus came out of obscurity into public life. And then we see how he, um, I got all C's here. He was conceived, he was confirmed. And then in the desert, he contended and conquered in the power of the Holy Spirit as he dealt with the temptations that Satan brought to him. And then it says he came out of that into Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. So conceived, confirmed, empowered, consecrated now as we read these words in Luke chapter 4. Holy Spirit is all over him in everything he did. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if you and I are going to continue the work that Jesus began, if he needed to be full of the Holy Spirit, we need to be full of the Holy Spirit, not just as an experience, although that is an experience, not just so that I can say, I've been filled with the Holy Spirit, I felt a shiver down my... It's not about that. It's about us being empowered to do what Jesus began, to be part of what he was. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. At the end of this meeting, in a moment, when I shut up, there'll be an opportunity for us to be prayed for. We could do with some of that, couldn't we? Just come, someone, stand with me, put their hand on me and say, Fill this man with your spirit, Lord. We, we could all do with a bit of that. That sounds awful, a bit of that. No, we could do with that. 
Jesus refused to give in to Satan's temptations to do things his way and renounced the kind of power that he was offering. And so as a result, Jesus, as a result of his refusing to go that way, he returned in the power of the Holy Spirit to Galilee. He refused to seek pleasure and power by Satan's agenda, and the result was that he enjoyed the power of God. There's something there for us to learn. You know, I reject that way, and as a consequence, God comes. Second thing to notice, footstep that we can walk in, is just goes on from there. He resisted the devil, and he drew near to God. James says that, doesn't he? Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Come near to God, and he'll come near to you. A wonderful promise. If we resist the temptations of the evil one, God will come near to us in the person and power of the Holy Spirit. You may have to give some stuff up. I may have to give some stuff up in order for me to be able to draw near to God. I may have to resist the devil in some way. Turn to clear off. And the promise of Jesus is that whatever you give up for the sake of the kingdom of God, he will give to you a hundredfold more. Whatever you give up in terms of seeking after what the world offers you, in order for you to be the person that God wants you to be, Whatever you give up, what God will give you, will exceed that in terms of joy and peace and purpose in your life that the world can't give you. Nothing can compare with being filled with the Holy Spirit. You were made for God. You were made for God. You were created to be the temple of the Spirit of God. That's what you were made for. Nothing this world offers you can give you anything that matches that. Because that's what you were made for. If you've never asked God to come into your life, to be born of the Spirit, do it. It's what you were made for. It's what you were created for. And if as a child of God, you've not yet experienced what it is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit. Ask Him, ask Him. That's what you were made for. And the third thing to say about the footsteps of Jesus that we need to walk in, that He outlines here, is we need to be on the offensive. I don't mean we need to be offensive. But we need to be on the offensive. There are battlefronts in our lives, in our world, and we need to be there. We need to be there as the body of Christ. We need to be what Jesus was then. We need to be, by the power of his Spirit, now. And he names some of them. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Number one, battlefront. The story of Jesus' life and the message that he brought is essentially and primarily good news. We have good news. 
that's hard to find, isn't it? You look in your newspaper, watch the news on TV, it's hard to find good news. We've got good news. We, we, are, we have always got good news. Um, so you've always got an opportunity for your little Z card. You know, when someone says, have you seen what it says in the Daily Mail this morning? <laughs> you can just say, here, read this. You know, or whatever. You know. I don't read the Daily Mail. Is it, is it a good paper? No. <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> and it's good news for the poor. For the poor. There's often a, a popular misconception that you have to be of a certain status to merit the favor of God. To be a nice person, a rich person, a well-to-do person, a middle-class person, or whatever. And of course, we find when we read, when, we, when we're going to look at the life of Jesus, that he came to the poor, he came to the ordinary, he came to the common. And he lived amongst them. And I just always, I love that. Because I, I think of myself as sort of common. You know, I... I don't think I've got anything that I can impress God with. You know, two GCE O-levels. You know. I can imagine God saying, what's an O-level? You know. That was in the old days, Lord. Anyway, but... Jesus came to the ordinary. Look at his disciples, the people that he chose to spend time with. The despised, the outcasts, and the relatively wealthy like Zacchaeus and Nicodemus. No one was automatically excluded because of their status in society. And 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, It's not the will of God that anyone should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of God. So we've got good news for anybody. And you might say, but there are people in Beaconsfield and around this area who, who would say they're not poor. They're not the poor. They're rich. Well, I would say, turn to um, look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17. I won't look it up, but it just says you have the reputation of being rich, but I'm telling you that you are desperately poor. So you may have loads in the bank and a big house, but actually in God's estimation, you are extremely poor without Jesus. So, the church needs to be on the front foot, if you like, in taking good news to everyone. We have a mission to those who are physically and materially poor. Hopefully we can represent that in some of the things that we get involved in as a church and to those who are spiritually poor. He says another battlefront is freedom for prisoners. Jesus and his church have something to say and to do for those who are imprisoned. And not just, I mean, there's no account of Jesus going anywhere near a prison and opening up the doors and sending people out. But what he did see was people whose lives were imprisoned by all sorts of things. And we see that today. Alcohol, drugs, pornography sexual um, sin in some way or other, all sorts of things that people's lives are um, imprisoned by that hold them back from knowing God being the people that God created them to be. 
And the church, along with Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, is equipped and called to bring people out of that stuff and into freedom. Another thing, another battlefront, it's just two more, sight for the blind. There are those around us, you know them, people who are blinded by lies. Whose lies, they are kept away from knowing God and knowing life as God intended it to be because they've listened to the lie that says there is no God. They're blinded. In the power of the Spirit, we are able to open people's eyes to the truth. And it's a wonderful thing, you know, that sometimes it's not about clever arguing and reasoning. Um, There is sometimes, I think Libby said it to me last Sunday, sometimes you just meet Christians and you know they've got something. You see something there. You don't have to be persuaded by clever argument. And sometimes that's all it takes for someone's eyes to be opened to the truth. That's how it was for me because I met Christians and I saw in them something that I wanted. And of course, some parts of the church are involved in actually bringing physical sight to the blind. It's wonderful. Jesus did it supernaturally and I believe he can still do it. Supernaturally bring healing to our bodies. Supernaturally the church can be a vehicle for that. But we also see wonderful things being done medically by Christians and different missions in different parts of the world that are able, by the grace of God and by their own skills, to recover sight for the blind. And finally, he talks about release for the oppressed. Those who languish under injustice and oppressive regimes, there are those in other parts of the world, particularly today, who are in that sort of position. We sometimes hear about the situation in North Korea. We think of brothers and sisters in uh, some parts of the East, particularly in, in uh, Pakistan, and uh, some in China, and so on. We, we hear of uh, people who are oppressed in, under oppressive regimes, and wonderfully, even within those situations, you have men and women whose lives are transformed by knowing Jesus, even in that situation. And of course, as a church, as part of the church, we can work and pray towards seeing people released from that. In conclusion, when the Spirit of the Lord is on us, and he anoints us to share in the ministry of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, We will pray and speak and work for the release of captives, the recovery of sight for the blind, and the liberty of the oppressed, as long as the year of the Lord's favour lasts. And then the end will come, and we'll have our reward, and uh, that'll be that. But this is the day. This is the day. This is the day. And I would just finish by urging you if you're, if you're already a Christian, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with His Spirit. Seek the anointing of the Spirit of God on your life. If you're not a Christian, 
This is the day of the Lord's favour. He's patient with you, but one day his patience will run out (laughs) and the day of the the last day will come. But I just want to say to you, come on, make make that step. Jump in, you know, and receive him. Amen. I'm just going to invite the 